My name is Ross and we are starting this new series. First of all, first order of business, our wonderful leaders, Paul and Byrne, have had their baby girl. Beth is in the world. Yes. Uh, I, I threatened Sia before the service. I said, if you announce this and I don't get to announce it, I will resent you. And I evidently said that with more anger than I realized because uh, Sia listened, which he almost never does. Um, so, yeah, it's wonderful. I'm sure we'll see them around in the next couple of weeks, but that's a wonderful addition to our family as a church. Um, I've, as some of you may know, I have three wonderful children, age two, four, and six. Um, life has been busy. And one of, I've been suddenly aware of some of the things that I unconsciously have been singing along to with my children uh, that I didn't know that I was participating in. The first one that really got my attention is I didn't realize how often these kids' TV shows have like that music beforehand with a song, and it includes the words, the fun will never end. And then my kids are running around going, the fun will never end, and I couldn't take it after a while. Eventually, I called them together. I was like, guys, just pull it in, put it in. I just want to let you guys know the fun is totally going to end. Okay, I know like, it's great that you're having fun now, but later we got to get some stuff done. we got to have supper, we got to bath, we got to brush our teeth, and you got to go to bed. So enjoy the fun, but the fun is going to end. The next song that really got my attention was from the wonderful, classic, beautiful, extraordinary movie about familial love called Frozen. Um, I absolutely love the movie Frozen because I love all musicals. I, I wish I could live in a world where we all get to spontaneously break into song and dance and other people join in instead of looking at us like we're weird. And so I, I love Frozen. I knew all the words to all the Frozen songs before any of my kids could speak. Um, I, I did it under the guise of this is me being a good dad, but really I was just trying to fulfill my unfulfilled dreams. And so I, I would sing these songs with my kids and as I got older, I would dance around with them and then I realized I was dancing around with my little girl Grace and singing Love is an Open Door. And then I got scared. And then I thought I need to bring some clarity. So eventually I was like, my baby, sometimes love is not an open door. Okay, because just so you know, the guy that she was singing Love is an Open Door with in the story ended up being a bad guy. Okay, so sometimes... Guys want to make like love's an open door, but they're actually bad guys. So it's always best if a guy wants to love you, come talk to dad and tell him to come and talk to dad. And she agreed. So I think we're going to be fun. I think we're good. I think I've said everything in place. And then, of course, there's the ultimate beautiful song of the movie called Let It Go. And these words are words that I used to sing along to with gusto with my children. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And there we were, happily, unconsciously, without thinking about it, singing, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And the reason that I could get into a place where I could freely sing along to that song with my girls and boy and not realize what I was doing is because that's so much a normal part of the message within our culture that we don't even question it. See, freedom is something that every single one of us values and treasures, and with good reason. It's something we should value and treasure. But we have taken it from something that is good into the moral good. We now see freedom as a culture as morally good. And not only do we see it as morally good, our culture probably considers it the ultimate moral good. We live in a time when you can't talk about morals. There's moral relativism everywhere. You, you can't, it's like you feel awkward coming out about, I don't believe that's right. I believe, like the whole thing's got messy and muddy. And, 
but no one argues about this moral good called freedom. And that's so much in our mindset that we think about freedom. And the way that we think about freedom is this. Freedom is the absence of any external constraints. We think if I can be rid of any external constraints, then I'll be free. And, and that's how I can sing no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And the moral argument is tied up right there within the song. Just before that, it says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. The idea is anything that externally constrains me as a person from being everything that I want to be is morally wrong and I need to resist it. And that's how we think about freedom. And it's right, there's something of God in us where we, every single one of us craves freedom, but we don't think about it when we just think about we, I want to be free from external, moral, external constraints. You see, freedom is a lot more complicated than that because most of the time, I would argue every time, we try to pursue freedom by resisting some kind of external constraint. We don't realize it necessarily, but we just find ourselves bound by some other kind of external constraint. There's always a trade-off. It's the classic teenager who resists the external constraint to their parents so they can go and be with their friends and do what they want to do, only to find out that they're a slave to what their friends think of them. Two examples that might be more relevant to the people at this age in this room is the first is romantic love. As a young Christian man, I was very keen to get married so that I could express my freedom. I had waited a long time to express my freedom. And I was very excited to get married. And then I got married and I discovered a new freedom that I did not know existed as I fulfilled what God had put in me as a man to be united with my wife and to live in that kind of intimacy. But I discovered that marriage is not the absence of external constraints. For both of us, right? Because suddenly you're living with another human being and you have to think about what the other human being wants all the time. Whereas I used to just think about what I wanted. And so, yes, there is a beautiful freedom that comes in marriage, but there's always a trade-off. The other example is any kind of personal development, right? I've used this example before, but I think most of you don't remember, so I'm fine. There's, if you take two young people, both equally talented in music, and the one says, I'm going to apply myself, I'm going to learn, I'm going to practice, I'm going to listen to my teacher, I'm going to do my scales all the time, even though it's not the most fun thing to do. And the other one says, I don't want to do that. I don't want that constraint. Don't try to put your rules on me. I don't want to do that lame practicing. I'm just going to do what I want. I'm going to play the songs I want. Maybe just learn some pop music or whatever. The one seems so much more constrained, but in 10 years' time, which one is going to be able to more fulfill, more freely express the gift inside of them? It's the one who chose the constraint. And so we, all the time, we choose constraints in order to be able to live out a greater degree of freedom. If you've done any kind of tertiary education or you've done any kind of apprenticeship or anything like that in your life, what you did is you made a trade-off. You limited your freedom for a while, submitted yourself to some constraints because you believed in the long run in your life it would make you more free. And so freedom is so much more complicated than we realize. My, one of my heroes in the faith, Tim Keller, says this. He says, freedom is not the absence of constraints. It is choosing the liberating constraints. See, there's always a constraint, but we can choose the ones that are going to make us more free. And Jesus lived and modeled this perfectly because Jesus was the freest, most open, most free person that has ever lived in the world. Thank you. See, I see, this is marriage. I didn't have to say anything. Thanks, my love. 
All right, so we're gonna look at Luke chapter seven, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. We'll stop there. So these Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. And what these guys did is they were experts at creating external religious expectations and putting those burdens on people. That's what they did. Because what would happen, you'd have different rabbis who were some of these Pharisees and they had different teachings. And what they would do in order to try to differentiate themselves from other rabbis is they would take some of the wonderful good stuff written in God's word and take it to a degree that God never intended and where God God's word always brings freedom. They would take it and apply it to people's lives so stringently, so forcefully, and to such a degree that it became a burden on people. And so they were always trying to outdo one another in the extremities of their teachings because then they could show that they were more pure, more holy, more righteous. And so they created this spiritual religious environment where there were these huge external religious pressures on people. And people would know what was expected of them they would know whenever they fell short and other people would also know. And these rabbis would, or these Pharisees would make a point of letting other people know when they saw someone falling short. So there was this massive external religious expectation. If you think your mother-in-law can give you a guilt trip, you, you don't understand. These people invented the guilt trip. And so there was this massive amount of religious expectation. And Jesus spent lots of time with these people. He didn't avoid them. Here he is sitting, having dinner with them. In John chapter three, we know one of them came to visit him at night. He spent a lot of time in the temple arguing with them and debating with them and they were challenging his authority all the time. Jesus spent lots of time with these guys with a huge external religious expectation, but he never felt pressurized by them. In contrast, where these people had the standard, they went to the absolute extreme about you must not work on the Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field and they start picking heads of grain and eating it. And they come, these guys come to him and say, you, why are you working on the Sabbath? And then Jesus quotes a scripture that they didn't think about and wins the argument like he always did. And then they always would see if Jesus was gonna heal on the Sabbath because that's, like, that's how religious they were. Like you couldn't even do a good thing like heal someone of a sickness on the Sabbath. And so they'd wait to see and, and right on their face in the temple when they're all waiting to see what would happen, Jesus calls a man over and heals him. And he stands in absolute contrast to them. Jesus spent his time hanging around prostitutes. He had parties with tax collectors and drunks just so you understand what that might be like in our modern time. So Jesus... One of his disciples, Matthew, was a tax collector. And then Matthew throws a party with his other tax collector friends. And Jesus is there. Just so you understand what that might be like, the equivalent in our time, that would be these tax collectors made their money through corrupt ways. It would be like Jesus saves a person who made a lot of money through corrupt tenders. And then that guy throws a party with all of his tender friends. And Jesus is hanging out with them while they're drinking Johnny Walker Blue and Hennessy. What would we think when we saw Jesus behaving in that way? Jesus doesn't just offend the religious time, people from the time. Jesus should offend, offend our religiousness because every one of us has a degree of religiousness inside of us. And if you haven't been offended about how irreligious Jesus is, then you probably haven't seen him for who he is. The one that I struggle with, John chapter two, Jesus said at a wedding, and they run out of wine. Now, if you're at a wedding and they run out of wine, my suggestion is we've had enough to drink at this point. 
Someone, Jesus' mom comes to him and says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. He says, well, fill up those jars of water. Those jars were actually used for purification. They empty them out. They fill them up with water. Jesus turns that water into wine and it's like the best wine that any of them have ever tasted. If you took, we know how many jars there were. We know how much each one of those jars would have held. If you made the equivalent amount of wine today and bottles of wine, it would be between 600 and 900 bottles of wine. That offends my religiousness. Okay, I am Pentecostal assemblies of God raised. Some of you don't know what that means, but that offends my religiousness. And if I was at a wedding and we ran out of booze and one of the leaders from this church was like, don't worry, I got this, I got a connection. I'm just gonna phone my mates at Liberty Liquors, pulls in a truck with 600 to 900 bottles of wine. I'd be like, bro, what are you doing? Are you crazy? This is irresponsible behavior. Jesus doesn't care about our religious expectations. There is a generosity in him that is not withheld by what religious people think. And just to fulfill my own religious issues and to preach the full Bible, the Bible does say don't get drunk on wine. Okay, so now I can sleep tonight. Now that I've preached the full counsel of God, Jesus turned water into wine. Also, don't get drunk on wine. Okay, we're all good. That was just for me. Okay, the next verse. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. There's so much going on with this verse. The scripture says a woman who had lived a sinful life. All the commentaries say that it is understood by that that she was a prostitute. So it's a respectable dinner with religious leaders. Everyone's sitting around. In walks a prostitute and she's holding an alabaster jar of perfume. What that alabaster jar of perfume was, was a tool of her trade. It's something that she would have used as part of her business as being a prostitute. Obviously, she would have put it on her body to make herself more tempting to the men who might have smelt her. But also, in the time when they didn't have Oma washing powder and things weren't as clean, she would take some of that and sprinkle it on the bed to try to make the whole place feel cleaner than it really was for her next client. So a prostitute walks in with a tool of her trade and comes into this religious setting with this respectable dinner, and Jesus is totally unintimidated by this. Jesus is not concerned by the sin of this woman. You know why? Because Jesus is completely free from sin. And when you're free from sin, you're not scared by other people's sin. And Jesus is completely free from sin. And so while Jesus could be around the religious people, and not be influenced by them and not feel any need to live up to their expectations, Jesus could also be around the irreligious, sinful people and not be influenced by them at all. And so Jesus could be at the party with Matthew and his tax collector friends, but never make a coarse joke to try to get a cheap laugh and get some approval from them. And he could be around the prostitutes, but never look at one of them lustfully. And he could be around this environment where people are drinking and partying, but never have one drink too many to try to be relevant to his friends. Jesus was absolutely free from religion, but he was also absolutely free from sin. And so often there's these two polarized ways that we look at freedom. We see religion and we go, I'm not gonna be a part of that. I don't wanna be, have these external pressures. And then we can lean towards allowing sin to ensnare us. And then there's some of us who go and see the sin and we see the problems. We go, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to be, and we find ourselves being in the religious camp. There's these two dual threats that come to threaten our freedom, 
And we find ourselves battling between them and Jesus doesn't battle between them. He's free from both of them completely. So often we look at those things, we say, well, you gotta find a balance. Jesus doesn't find a balance. He's just free from it. They're not an issue. They're totally removed from the subject. Jesus is completely and totally free. If, can you think about the fact that Jesus, we talk, so yeah, Jesus hung out with prostitutes and if you've been in church, you've heard that a while, so it doesn't really resonate with you. Think about this. Jesus was a 30-year-old single man hanging out with prostitutes. Like if there was a 30-year-old single man in our church, it was like, Ross, I feel God calling me to the prostitutes. I'd be like, bud, not sure that's the right ministry for you. Don't think that's wise. If I went to my wife and was like, my love, I feel like I'm gonna go and start ministering to the prostitutes in Point Road. Don't worry, you don't need to come with me. I'll be fine. Don't think she would feel comfortable with that. Do you understand that Jesus had hormones? The Bible says that he was tempted in all the same ways that we are tempted and yet without sin. Jesus had testosterone. And as a 30-year-old single man, With testosterone, he spent time with prostitutes but never lusted over the one of them. That's the kind of spiritual freedom that Jesus had from sin. Let's keep reading. As she stood behind him, this is the lady, the prostitute. She stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I don't know if anyone here has ever been a part of a foot washing. It's like something we do in church sometimes. Like, and it's this beautiful thing. I've done it one time in my life. It's like that you think of like, there's gonna be this beautiful like spiritual thing. And it is a beautiful spiritual thing. It's also extremely awkward. Because you gotta like take the person's shoes off and underneath the shoes are some socks and then you take the socks off and underneath the socks are feet and you gotta touch their feet and rub their feet and dry their feet and sometimes you go to weddings and people are like, oh, they're gonna do this beautiful thing as a sign of their love for one another. They're gonna wash each other's feet and half the ladies are going, ah, and the rest of us are going, ugh. Why, but like, can't you just, I mean, you guys are gonna be in private later. Do that stuff, we don't wanna have to see your feet. It's like it's awkward. Jesus is sitting there and this lady, she cries and weeps to the point where she's wetting his feet with her tears. Now I am English and male enough that any kind of crying in a public setting makes me uncomfortable. This woman is bawling at his feet and wetting his feet and he is totally fine with it. She then starts wiping his feet with her hair like At this point, we don't even need to mention the idea of a personal space bubble. Like that is so thoroughly in your personal space bubble. And so imagine watching this whole situation with this lady crying and wiping his feet with the hair. And then she pours this perfume, which she has used for ungodly things over his feet. Like this was so incredibly socially awkward. And Jesus is totally fine with it. Because Jesus does not care about social pressures. Jesus is totally free from social pressures. Jesus never thought the thought, what is everybody gonna think? Because Jesus did not care what everybody was gonna think. Jesus is free from social pressure. And so if Jesus was alive today, he would not care how much old khaki he was wearing. He wouldn't care what car he was driving. 
He wouldn't care how skinny or loose his jeans are. He would, or how high you're supposed to roll them up. He wouldn't care about what school his kids went to. And he wouldn't care about how many likes he got on Instagram. He was totally free from social pressure. He did not care about what people were thinking. And the freedom that this gives him allows him to care for and love the person in the room who needed it the most. And so he goes on. Everyone's scandalized by this whole situation. And Jesus addresses it. He says, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. He's talking to the Pharisee now. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. When he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. What Jesus is doing is here, is he is publicly, in front of everybody, comparing and contrasting a prostitute and a religious leader and finding in favor of the prostitute. Like imagine the, what people must have felt and thought and only a free man can sit in a room with his religious expectation and social expectation and awkwardness because of sin and go, hey, Simon, here's you and here's her. And you know what? I find in favor of her. And he actually goes as far as to say, she loves God more than you do. Imagine what that must be like in that room to have the, the sinful person in the room that everyone was looking down on and feeling awkward about be publicly loved and affirmed. And so Jesus goes on and he says, your sin, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus broke all the social norms. He rebuked the one that everyone thought was good so that he could give love and affection and affirmation to the person who needed it the most in the room. And there's this woman who, out of the whole place of people who all think they've got it together, realizes she doesn't have it together and she needs Jesus. And she comes in this vulnerable moment and Jesus, because he doesn't care about people's religious expectations, he doesn't care about sin because he's free from sin and he does not care about social pressure, is able to do what is most needed in that room. He loves the woman who needs love. And he gives her forgiveness and he publicly affirms her in front of everybody. That's a free life. That's freedom to be able to do what needs to be done because you do not care about religious expectation, sin, or social pressure. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could live lives like that? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could live lives as free as Jesus lived them? Imagine how we could change the world. And here's the thing, we're doing this series called I Am Disciple, and the premise of the series is this. Jesus has called us to be his disciples. See, everywhere Jesus went, Jesus called people to follow him and be his disciples. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. Jesus is about disciples. 
And Jesus is calling us to be his disciples, which means to follow him. There's this beautiful little exchange in John chapter one where Jesus calls his very first disciples. And it goes like this. John the Baptist is standing with some of his disciples and Jesus walks past and John the Baptist says for the second time, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these guys are like, okay, I can't take anymore. I have to go check this Jesus out. And so they start following Jesus and they're following Jesus and Jesus turns around and says to them, what do you want? It's a good question. If you're walking along and someone's following you, fair question. What do you want? And they say to him, uh, Rabbi, where are you going? Or where are you staying tonight? Which is kind of like a random question, right? Like you're following this guy that might be the savior of the world. What do you want? Uh, where are you staying tonight? It's like when my kids go, dad, 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 dad. And I go, yes. And they go, uh, 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 and really they just want my attention. And they just want to be with Jesus. And this is the beautiful part of this exchange. Jesus turns around to them to answer their question. He says, come and see. See, he could have just answered the question. He could just say, I'm staying here tonight. But instead, he says, come and see. And he invites them into a relationship with him where they can follow him and see him for who he is so they can spend their lives following him and becoming like him. This is a beautiful thing. So many of us start start our relationships with God because we've got a question. And sometimes we can't even really articulate the question properly. And we just know that there's something unanswered inside of us. And then we start getting a hint of who this Jesus is. And we go after him and he says, hey, what do you want? And we don't even really know what to say. But then he says, hey, I'm not gonna answer your question. I'm gonna invite you into a relationship so you can see it for yourself. See, we serve a God who doesn't just give us answers to our questions. He doesn't say, hey, come and listen to my teaching. He doesn't say, hey, come and listen to this podcast. He doesn't say, hey, come and read this book. Come and obey. He says, come and follow and see me for who I am so that you can see who I am and live like I live. That's the thing that Jesus has called us into as disciples. We get to see Jesus for who he is. And the thing is, when we see him for who he is, we want to follow him. See, people who follow Jesus, they would come and say, Jesus would say, follow me, and they would leave behind their businesses. They would leave behind family. They would leave behind old rabbis. They would leave behind old teachings, and they would go after Jesus because they could see him for who he was, and they knew that he was following. Jesus invites you to come and see him, to know him, to follow him, so we can spend the rest of our lives living like he lived. That's what it means to be a disciple. When I was prepping for today, I was... Oh dear, they're waving and saying I've got five minutes. I'm gonna be real, it's not gonna be five minutes. Um, When I was prepping for today, I I was looking at, I was was trying to find a modern day equivalent of disciple uh, to try to get an idea of what it meant to be a disciple and something that we could get our teeth into, that we could understand. And what I found was we have no modern equivalent for what it meant to be a disciple. I searched for like modern day disciple and, all, and every single Google res- outcome that I found, every search result was referring back to Bible times. See, we have nothing in our frame of reference for what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, what that means is we don't think in terms of disciple following our rabbi, we think in terms of influencer or thought generator or content generator. We have these phrases in our lexicon as modern people And the problem is that when that's our frame of reference, often when we do find Jesus and we meet him, instead of abandoning everything to follow him and go after him so we can live like him, we just add him to our newsfeed. And so we get a little bit of Daily Maverick and a little bit of News 24 and a little bit of Oprah and a little bit of Joe Rogan, a little bit of Malcolm Gladwell, and a little bit of Brene Brown, a little bit of whatever you're into, and then a little bit of Jesus. 
and he's just added to our newsfeed. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, can I please be part of your newsfeed? Jesus comes along and says, come and follow me. Come and see what I'm about. Come and participate in what I'm doing because I want you to live a life like I live. The beautiful thing about the fact that Jesus calls us to be his disciples is that a rabbi would only call someone to be their disciple if he believed that they could live like he would live. A rabbi generally only had a handful of disciples and so he had to find the best and the brightest who were worth his time and his attention and the investment of his energy. So you'd find the ones who were the top of the class, the top dogs and say, I think you can be like me. I think you can live like I live. I think you can walk like I walk. Come and follow me. Jesus comes to every single one of us and he gives us an invitation. He says, come and follow me. And it's because he believes that you can live like he lives. And you can walk like he walked. And so when we look at Jesus and how free he was, we can be free like him if we will leave behind whatever we need to leave behind, make him our rabbi and follow after him to live a life like he lived. He believes we can do it. Most of the time we don't. The question is whose opinion are you gonna listen to, mine or Jesus's? And that's the, the process of my life is trying to listen to Jesus more than I listen to myself because I doubt myself all the time. But Jesus believes that I can walk like he walks. So how, what did Jesus believe? And I'm gonna do this as quick as I can, I promise. What did Jesus believe that allowed him to live so free? What were, what were his thoughts? And the, this is... I literally wrote a whole other sermon on this and now I'm trying to get it down into five minutes. But here's the thing. Jesus, here's the, the, the essence of it, boiled down. Jesus defined himself first and foremost as a son to his father. That's how he defined himself. And so when he had all of these exchanges with these religious Pharisees and they would challenge him and some of it got nasty where they would insinuate things about who's your dad because everyone knew there was that kind of a thing with Mary and Joseph and what happened over there. And so they would say, who's your dad? And where do you come from? And who are you? And who gives you the right? And what's your authority? And they would challenge him. And everything in me as a natural man, when someone comes along and says, who are you? I wanna rise up and try to prove myself and go, I'm, I'll show you who I am. I'm going to show that I'm worth it. I'm going to show you that I got what it takes. Jesus just went, this is who my dad is. Who are you? I'm a son to my dad. Who gave you the authority? My dad gave me authority. How can you do these things? My dad's always with me. He promised he'd never leave me. Jesus defined himself completely and totally as a son to his father. And because Jesus did that. We can define ourselves completely and totally as sons to our Father. The Bible says that as many of us have believed in His name, He gives the right to become children of God. We are children of God, born not according to the will of the flesh or the will of man, but according to the will of God. It is God's desire that we would be born again as His children. And we become His children. And when we become His children, we are born again just like Jesus is born. And we are children of God. And my identity goes from I've got to prove it to the religious people or to the social expectations or I've got to try to overcome the sin issue. And my identity changes to I'm a son. I'm a son with my dad. Who are you? I'm a son to my dad. How come you can do it? My dad said I can do it. 
changes everything. Jesus also said, he said, I only, see what I, I only do what I see my Father doing. In another place, it says, then you'll, he says, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. That is completely contradictory to our understanding of freedom. So we think freedom is the absence of external constraints. Jesus was the freest person who ever lived, and he lived in complete submission to, Jesus, to his Father. He said, I only do the things that my Father does. I only say the things that my Father says I must say. He is totally with this massive external constraint of a relationship with the Father. And because of that relationship to the Father, he could live so free. See, our life, if we're pursuing freedom, is not about getting rid of constraints. Our life is choosing the liberating constraints. And there is no more liberating constraint than a good Father who loves us. We get to live with the knowledge of our dad who loves us and his affirmation and his power in us and that he's for us. And I, I might only ever, if I could live where I only ever do the things he says I must do and I only say the things he must say, I'd be freer than anyone. That external constraint is so freeing and so liberating because he's a good, good dad. Jesus also said, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. See, we think of freedom as the ex getting rid of external constraints. And the opposite of a slave is not someone who can do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. The opposite of a slave is a son. And if we want to be free, if we want to live lives where we are truly, truly free, we got to understand who we are and define ourselves according to what the Father says, that we are sons to our dad and we can be free. I'm not a slave, I'm a son. And as these things come in life, as they will come to try to steal from our freedom, and in my life, it's regularly been religious stuff where I feel like I've got to live up to certain religious standards. I don't have to do that because my dad already approves of me doesn't matter about your religious expectations. My dad approves of me. He said he'll never leave me. He's always with me. He loves me. He's for me. And as the temptation to sin comes along and I'm tempted to be ensnared by the entanglement of sin, I can say, why would I opt to become a slave when I'm a son at my father's table? I've got something so much better. I've, sometimes we choose sin because we think that's freedom, but it's actually enslavement. Our true freedom is sitting at the table with our dad. And as we live with this time where there's these social pressures to look certain ways and behave certain ways, and we can often just see ourselves through the way we think other people might see us. We can go, I don't care how other people might see me because my dad loves me and he thinks I'm great. I'm his boy. And we get to live totally free. We can live free from these things that ensnare us. And that's what God invites you to. That's what Jesus invites you to when he comes to you and he says, come, follow me.